At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. Could it be the presidential campaigns will actually treat Georgia as more than just a cash machine? Some Democratic candidates made all the right noises during their recent visits, but does any of them have the keys to a winning coalition? Meanwhile, the state's Republican governor makes some key appointments by selecting African-American and Hispanic candidates, and Stacey Abrams goes to Hollywood. It's a big and varied menu for this edition of The Political Breakfast. Welcome. I'm Dennis O'Hare, along with Brian Robinson, a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal, and Theron Johnson, a Democratic strategist, public affairs, and government consultant, and former National Southern Regional Director for the Obama 2012 campaign. Hey, guys, welcome back. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning. Let's start with the parade of Democratic presidential candidates who have been in town and who are coming. There were four just recently, Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, and Beto O'Rourke. Booker and Buttigieg spoke to the African-American Leadership Council Summit here. Theron, you're the Democratic strategist here. This is a state that apparently Democrats are serious about actually campaigning in and organizing in, not just drawing money from. Is there a formula, though? that will help a Democratic candidate win the primary and jump out from that crowded field? Yeah, what we saw, Dennis, is something that is shows that Georgia is changing and has changed. Uh, we are now a battleground state. For these presidential hopefuls to spend an enormous amount of time, not just fundraising, but actually having one-on-ones, town hall meetings, mm-hmm. sort of small group meetings across the state, um, while they were here in the metro area, shows that they're really going to take it seriously. But do they follow that up with organizations, with offices, with campaign staff, with grassroots efforts? We're already seeing it. I am feeling sort of the onslaught of emails, follow-up emails from not just the four candidates who were here, but the other four or five top candidates saying, hey, we want to get your input. How do we win Georgia? What really happened in the governor's race? What do you think is going to happen in the Senate race? Uh, Who do you think the Democratic nominee is going to be? From a person who worked on a presidential campaign, those are the type of questions you ask to get a true depiction of the landscape, and that means that they're going to put some resources here. Okay, I disagree with this because Theron said this is about us being a battleground state, and it's not. It's because the battleground state doesn't matter right now. It's about winning the primary for them, not taking Republicans out of the equation completely. They're coming here for two reasons. One, we're a major media market, one of the biggest in the country. And so they're doing these grassroots Mm -hmm. events talking about voter suppression and other Stacey Abrams made up issues to get media coverage or platforms for getting media coverage. You know, Atlanta's uniquely situated. We've got CNN, we've got a Fox News Bureau, Mm -hmm. NBC Bureau, CBS, ABC have correspondence here. So we are a media hub. Two, we are an ATM. Electorally, we are much less important than our neighbors to the east, South Carolina. South Carolina is going to whittle the field down 
it'll tell us a lot more about where African-American voters are leaning. That'll be very influential on a Democratic primary here where African-Americans are the overwhelming voice. And they come here because there are a lot more rich Democrats in Georgia than there are in South Carolina. And they can raise money from people like Theron. But the pushback is this, Dennis. We can't get a date from our Republican-controlled constitutional officers here. One and of we've th- talked about this before on the podcast. One of the things that now Governor Kemp, former Secretary of State Brian Kemp, did is that he phrased and kind of coined this sort of SEC mm-hmm. primary. We can't legitimately have a conversation about where Georgia fits in the primary battle until we actually get a date to know when our primary is going to be held. But what issues are going to be important for the Democratic candidates here in Georgia to emphasize in order to put together a winning coalition for the nomination? Theron, um, is it enough to say, as Joe Biden seems to be emphasizing, we got to beat Trump, we got to beat Trump, we got to beat Trump? Or do they talk about voter suppression, Medicare for all, and perhaps what kind of policies, even foreign policy, they will implement. The one thing you're going to hear the Democratic candidates continue to talk about in Georgia is fixing the voter irregularities and problems that many voters face during this past election. And Brian has said that's a Stacey Abrams made-up issue. (laughs) No. Brian won't disagree with me there were some irregularities. Brian knows there were some irregularities. There are some problems, and there are some things that need to be fixed. Matter of fact, we need to make sure that this new expensive voting machines that we have are actually Mm going to be operable and going to be well-funded by that time. The second thing is going to be health care. I still believe at a time where this governor has come forward with Medicaid waivers, that is something that many Democrats have applauded him for, but doesn't think it goes far enough because, you know, Stacey Abrams campaigned on basically expanding full expansion of Medicaid. So I think you'll see the health care issue there, too. And then the third thing is I think it's going to be around the heartbeat bill. I believe that come January, February next year, we're going to see them start to really take strong stances on that issue. And then the last thing I think is that at a time where we're a growing region with a lot of transportation problems, don't be uh, shocked if you see some federal funding, some federal programs that these candidates can campaign on about how it will affect Georgia. What about the role of age here, Brian? And you're looking at a Democratic field, but if you have a young candidate emerge, and it doesn't have to be as young as Pete Buttigieg, for instance, but then they are positioning themselves to say generational change here and going after a president who's in his early 70s. Yeah, and that's sort of an issue where, you know, Biden throws away that argument if he's Mm -hmm. the one who emerges. And look, Biden's numbers right now are artificially high. I think Theron would agree with me on this. He's got the most name ID. He's the most prominent figure of all of them. He is associated with the singularly most popular Democratic politician of our age, Barack Obama. Those are all rocket boosters lifting him up right now. As we learn more about some of these other candidates— those numbers are going to begin to sink down. It's very important for Uncle Joe to have extraordinarily high numbers right now because he's going to lose some of that air. And somebody is going to emerge, presumably. That's what I thought in 2016, right? If we recall, we y'all love to bring up the fact that I said Trump wouldn't be our nominee. I believed in 2016 that the big field was helping Trump win a plurality in all of these states. And that once the field whittled down and it was mano a mano, that other man would be the 50 plus one. That didn't happen. So I think the Trump pathway is one that is Biden's only pathway 
to get a lead and maintain a lead and never falter because if one person emerges to take him on mano a mano and he's got a generational argument and somebody who is as effective as I think Buttigieg, he's effective. I don't think he's qualified just yet, but he's really smart and he's interesting. But if somebody like, like Harris or Booker or Warren can emerge, I think that they could take Biden down. I, but, you know, Warren has a really good message for the moment. In a lot of ways, it echoes stuff that you hear from Trump mm-hmm. uh, talking about the working class of America. And I, I think of that working class of America is not just Democrat anymore. It's a lot of Republican, and they're listening. But are Georgia Republicans watching carefully for the generational argument? Should a younger yeah. candidate emerge because— This is a state that is attracting lots of young people who are registering to vote. Does a younger Democratic candidate pose more of a threat in a state that's turning purple to Trump than, say, a Joe Biden would? I would even almost ask Theron this. Who is that person? Let's take Buttigieg out, right? he's, He's too young. I don't think he's the one that emerges. Is Booker someone who counts as generational change? Could he be the face of that? Possibly. He's certainly very charismatic. He's certainly got a good story to tell, can, I think, inflame the passions of the Democratic base if he's ever given the chance to do so. But who is it? Is it is it Harris? It's certainly not Warren or Sanders. I mean, they're septuagenarians as well. I, I mean, well, or well, she's at least in her yeah, 60s. she's in her 60s. Yeah. So I think it's, it, it's, it's Bernie Sanders, and let me tell you why. He is older, but let's not forget, guys, that Bernie Sanders dominated the millennials during the primary election against mm-hmm. former That's Secretary of State. Excellent point. Thank yeah. you. That's I a great mean, point. And, and so, so the thing is, what Brian is saying is I think on the Democratic side, it's going to be less about the person's age, but more about their message. So Bernie right now, Bernie Sanders has a message that most, not all, most millennials resonate with. But here's an opening for Cory Booker and for Kamala Harris, because let's face it, Brian just gave you a good depiction of how South Carolina is going to, I think, be the game changing state in the early presidential primary. But I will tell you this, and I want to make this bold prediction on our podcast. Do not count out Beto. Let me tell you why. Got a chance to visit with him when he was here in Atlanta. I actually spent you know, almost 45 minutes with him. And the one thing I noticed about Beto is he has this really unique way of really showing empathy and really engaging you and listening. Now, again, I'm a political veteran, so I know how they politicians sometimes, you know, <laughs> shake your hand a certain right. way or put their hand on the show to make you yeah. feel good. Always be sincere whether you mean it or not. <laughs> but his campaign manager, her name is Jen O'Malley Dillon. And let me tell you this. She is a person who I worked with in 2012 on the Barack Obama re-election campaign. She is one of the best organizers in the country. If Beto is mm-hmm. doing what I think he's doing in Iowa. And if you look at the polling, I mean, he's not in the top three, but he's in that top tier. They may be able to pull an upset in Iowa and New Hampshire. And if Beto does well there, then you're going to see a showdown. And then back to the, the youth argument, let's not count Beto out either because, I mean, this is a man that just based on his youthfulness, his candid um, sort of speak, uh, his passion is something that young people are looking for as well. Let me throw in another thing that surfaced on social media, and it, it resonated with me because the person who was tweeting was talking about the strength of the African-American sorority, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Kamala Harris, I believe, she is, is a soror, member of a.k.a. Anyone at the Georgia Capitol knows how influential those folks are 
and how many SORARs there are in this state and how well they organize. Oh, let me tell you so something. So Kamala Harris has a built-in network <laughs> Dennis, here that most people aren't aware of. Dennis, let me tell you, the, the AKAs, I'm an alpha, uh, member Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity <laughs> Incorporated, and our sorority sisters are Alpha Kappa Alpha, uh, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. My wife is an AK. Our very own Lisa Ram is an AK. Is an AK. In, yes, in a morning edition, right? Yes, she is. And so do not underestimate the power of these sororities. And let me just say this, another bold prediction. Mayor Bottoms is a Delta, we should She is a Delta, <laughs> yeah. How do y'all know that stuff? That's what I want to think. Well, you know, you know, for a second there, you thought Brian actually was African-American the way he was telling you the pathway for Joe Biden to, to win, but he had to, to spend enough time with sisters to, uh, to but Dennis, you know, being a, a lot veteran of my that colleagues he is, yeah. Are, yeah. But, 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 but Dennis, for you to say that as a, as a uh, American first and as a white male who has a long, you know, multi-decades in journalism to know how that sorority, mm -hmm. that connection is something that I think that Kamala Harris's campaign is not only going to play up. I mean, she's going to triple down on this. And the African-American women vote is going to determine our nominee. No person will become the nominee of the Democratic Party to go on and face President Trump without being able to build the coalition that is needed in southern states, particularly centered around the African-American woman vote, because I'm telling you, they are the hugest um, mm -hmm. voting block that we have in the South. Mm -hmm. And and Kamala and Corey and others are courting them heavily. Yeah. I tell you, the, the African-American women are the super voters of the Democratic Party in Georgia, where I would slightly veer off of Theron, and he knows more about Democratic prime than I do, obviously, but they're going to be hugely influential in South Carolina and in Georgia and a few other uh, southern states. Obviously, not a factor at all in Iowa or New Hampshire where there are no minorities in either state, really. So there's going to be some whittling effects in Iowa and New Hampshire. So, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire, even though they're lily white, have shown they will vote for an African American in these primaries. So the African-American candidates have a shot at winning there, and that could be a huge catapult for them. But it could, in fact, be white voters who, you know, narrow the choices for these African-American women once they come south. Let's shift now to the current occupant of the White House. This week, President Trump told ABC's George Stephanopoulos he might accept damaging information from foreign governments about political opponents. Might accept it. So... Brian, he didn't collude, but he's open to collusion. Is that going to be the <laughs> argument that the Democrats are going to make? And, 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 it, and it proves that Mueller's report, which Brian and other Republicans all across the country have defended, that this man went on national TV and alluded that he would entertain the option of obstructing, you know, an, an election. I mean, the number one thing that we have to, like, you know, keep us together as a democracy. But anyway, go go ahead, Brian. I mean, that's exactly, Dennis, what uh, he alluded on and, this on the show. And let's bring this to Georgia because Doug Collins, the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, which would be where any impeachment hearings would begin, has been defending the president. He kind of mocked John Dean during John Dean's recent appearance before yeah. the committee as sort of the ghost of Christmas past, so to speak. <laughs> Does the president's own behavior put his defenders in Georgia, like Doug Collins, like David Perdue, in a difficult position? It often does. It's, but, you know, the thing is for, for Doug and for David, it's still the politically smart thing to do is to 
back up the uh, Trump. Now, granted, sometimes you'll make an argument that's a rational argument, and then the, the president will come back behind you and undermine the rational argument that you're making on his behalf. That's sort of the danger of speaking out. So what you're going to see people like Purdue and Collins do is wait and see what the White House says in the wake of this, and then kind of back up that argument that they're, that's being made. I am as interested in anybody in figuring out what that argument is going to be, because I, I agree, you know, we've, we have strongly, on the Republican side, sold the message that there was no collusion, no obstruction. It, we have been, we've had message discipline, it's been a very clear message, and it's sunk in, it's been effective. And this, this undermines, undermines it. That. It does undermine it. It's it's, it's just a head pounding frustration. But I don't. At the end of the day, I don't think he would accept it because there are now people around him at least who was like, we we can't do this. But he went after another Georgian, Chris Ray, the FBI director, who he appointed, whom he appointed. And he didn't do it on his own. It was in response to a question from George Stephanopoulos, who said the FBI director has said if you are in a campaign and you are approached by a foreign government with damaging information about your opposition, you have to go to the FBI. And the president said the FBI director is wrong. This is terrifying. I mean, because, listen, we know that on let's just take partisanship out of it. Right. There are Democrats, Republicans, independents who all have been convicted or in jail now uh, because of corruption um, there. You know, it, it breaks uh, down barriers as far as partisanship. But what it does, Dennis, is that you have the president of the United States of America sitting at his desk. In the Oval Office, as George Stephanopoulos asked him this question, and what really struck me as an American, not just as a Democrat, is that he said it with so much confidence. You know, he basically tried to blame it on, oh, this is what other members of this Congress. This is oppo research. Yeah, oppo research, right? And this is what other members of Congress do. Well, you're not. Do other, they? You, let me get to that. <laughs> you're not another member of Congress. You're the president of the United States of America. You set the tone. You set the president for our country. People look at you to look at uh, what you are going to do as a leader of this country. So for the leader of this country to basically infer and allude that he may take this information to basically, you know, collude to win a campaign is very damaging. Now, look, I'm going to be very honest with you. Brian and I have been in campaigns for a very long time. When you're in a campaign, hypothetically, if someone comes to you with information, you know, look, you spend a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars to basically put oppo research on your opponents. Matter of fact, one of the first things I advise people to do is do oppo research on yourself. You need to know mm -hmm. more about yourself than your opponent. Yeah. If someone were to hypothetically go to any of these campaigns, members of Congress, and say, hey, we have some very damaging information uh, about your opponent, they may or may not be willing to even entertain the fact of either listening to that person themselves, which is highly unlikely, because you want to keep your candidate and your high level of ranking officials has, away. So there's there's the firewall effect that a you lot gotta of campaigns. You got to have a firewall, right? Okay. And then there's a there's a, a, a amount of vetting that goes into this source. Um, but the problem, but here, if the source is a foreign government, that's where I'm going. Where where listen, where Trump and the Trump campaign crossed the line is, and for him to just say this is oppo research. He's not telling the truth as usual. And he actually said in an interview that I'm a very truthful guy, which just made me actually spit my drink out. But when you get a information from a foreign hostile, a country that has a history of trying to destruct things in America and basically was attempting to disrupt our American voting process, there's where I think the Trump campaign should have drawn the line. So what this president has also alluded to 
and he's windowed it down as sort of being Apple research. If he were to be presented with this information again, he may or may not actually accept it. And and after being instructed by the FBI director that he hired to not do that and to report it immediately to the FBI, he basically went against what this agency that he has been critical of for a long time is instructing him to do. So, Brian, you've both been around campaigns. Have either of you ever run into information offered by someone that you thought, okay, this isn't just from somebody who used to work for this person and has damaging information about it. That's one thing. Have you ever thought that may have come from overseas or from outside our borders? No. I think this is extraordinarily rare. So and I when think the maybe president like says everybody does this, everybody doesn't do that? Well, everybody does oppo research. Yes. That, that, that part is true. That's what he but means. But I'm that, talking like, about the foreign far information. As, no. As far as the government of Iran or North Korea or Russia coming in with a document, no. I don't, I don't think that, that happens. I don't think even he would argue that that happens in, in a congressional race, in a U.S. Senate race. It just doesn't. Um, now maybe there's more of that on the presidential level. Theron's got experience there, and I, you know, I don't. But I, I just have a hard time believing that it would be that ostentatious, that you know, that upfront. If there's information coming from foreign countries, it is coming in through a third party with a legitimate American who is seen as the middleman. So there's man. kind of a front involved. There's a front. Yeah, exactly. If 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 it's happening at all, Theron, have you ever run into that? No. And the thing about it is, listen, you spend an enormous amount of money doing oppo research. Now, look, Democrats and Republicans have been fortunate for things that have come out. I mean, we go here to Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about on the show that people who are running against now looks like former or soon to be former insurance commissioner Jim Beck. People knew that there was some um, fraudulent alleged activity during his campaign now um, but there's also been some things that have come up in campaigns where you're like oh man we didn't know that I mean look at back at Alabama mm-hmm. in the US Senate race there were some things that came out during that race that didn't come up initially in these in these people in in the Republican Party nominated someone that I wish they had known um, there so it's rare but if it were to happen I don't think you would see the sprint from what we allegedly think we saw from the Trump campaign to really not only meet, but to entertain the possibility of using this information from a foreign hostile. Let me quickly ask Brian uh, to come back to Congressman Collins and Senator Perdue. In a way, are they in different positions? Because even though they're both closely tied to the president, Congressman Collins is in a position on the Judiciary Committee where he immediately has to defend the president because of the hearings that either will be held or are in the works. Mm -hmm. Whereas Senator Perdue has been pretty quiet on the Mueller report and has instead pursued the issues that he has been pursuing for a while, long-term debt, the budget deficit, hurricane relief, and a whole bunch of other things. Is he in a position where he can actually talk about other things, whereas Congressman Collins is pretty much in a position where he has to defend the president? Let's break it down to the politics. Doug Collins represents a slice of Georgia, and that slice, the 9th Congressional District, is one of the most Republican districts in the entire country. It may be top five. I know it was back when Nathan Deal had the 9th District, but definitely in the top 10. So in a all-Republican district, your political incentive in this context is to be an attack dog out front backing up President Trump 
who is wildly popular in that northeast portion of our state. Wildly popular. So there's nothing but political good for Doug to be out there fighting for President Trump and for his agenda and defending his reputation against a media that Doug's constituents see as unfairly biased against conservatives like them. For David Perdue, he and Doug are both on the ballot next year, but with very different electorates. You know, Perdue's got to win in a state that is closer than ever to 50-50 right now. It was 55,000 votes last year. Uh, Theron might tell you that six months later, that gap is closed because that's how fast the wheel is turning in Georgia. I don't know that that's true. But Purdue, at this juncture, has to have a more holistic message. He's got to talk about debt. He's got to talk about health care access. He's got to talk about transportation. He's got to talk about how his relationship with Trump helped us get $150 million to finally deepen the port since that was first authorized in the late 1990s. So he's got, he can toot his horn on stuff like that, much more broad message. But look, that said, Purdue is not backing down from his relationship with Trump. Oh, no. They're, they're, they're side by but side. But he's got other things they he believe, can talk They about. believe that's a winning formula. They believe that sticking with Trump in Georgia in 2020 is a winning formula for 50 plus one. It'll be tight, but they're going to win that way. But you're going to see them playing a different role than Doug Collins is. And we will be back with more of The Political Breakfast. Stay right here. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And we are back with The Political Breakfast. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Dennis O'Hare with Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. Gentlemen, let's talk about a couple of moves that Governor Kemp made appointing Doraville's veteran police chief John King as the new state insurance commissioner and Cobb County Chief Magistrate Judge Joyette Holmes as the new district attorney in Cobb John King, a native of Mexico, the first Hispanic in a constitutional statewide office. Chief Magistrate Judge Joyette Holmes as the new DA would be the first African-American woman to serve as Cobb DA. These are clearly moves not just to fill positions with respected people, but probably a political move or two here. Brian, I'll start with you. Look, this is not a new thing for Brian Kemp. And I want to give him a lot of credit here because, you know, I am a deal person and will be a deal person until the day I die. They're doing a better job. They're stepping it up over what we did as far as taking a determined tack toward emphasizing diversity in their appointments. They're doing it on boards. You know, they're they're not being overt about it, like putting pictures in the press releases when they put these board appointments out. But people who know are aware that they are appointing more Latinos, more African-Americans, more Asian-Americans, South Asian-Americans than what we've seen from Republican administrations in the past. It is a strategy, and it is one for which I have been calling for on this show for years, so I tip of the hat to him. As far as John King and the new Cobb DA, congrats to them. I do want to point this out, though. I agree we need to have more Latinos in the party because it's getting to be a bigger and bigger part of the state, but this guy looks like a white guy, and his name is John King. 
you know, so we're gonna they're gonna have to like actively I, let people know. I have covered him off and on over the years, and he is very well respected in that community. This, yeah, this very is well a guy respected. who brought in a much more diverse police force during his time in Doraville. He also took some criticism for paramilitary equipment that was brought in in Doraville over the years. But his name's not Juan Reyes, which would um, be the uh, the you know the the Spanish translation. So the, there's nothing there that's signaling that this is a minority. Uh, But he won praise from the Georgia Association of Latin American elected officials, which was not too long ago furious with then-candidate Kemp over his immigration campaign ads. I think this is exactly the kind of thing that a smart governor does to heal those wounds. Theron, let me jump to the Cobb DA appointment for just a moment, because this is not just a signal statewide to minority voters, it seems to me, but especially to minority voters in Cobb, where there have been accusations of racial profiling by law enforcement, and where Lisa Cupid, an African-American woman who's a county commissioner and who says she herself has been profiled, is running for commission chair. So this is an interesting move by Governor Kemp here. Definitely the governor deserves the kudos that he is going to receive and his team for doing the right thing. And I believe appointing the best person uh, who happened to be a person of color for these positions. That's the first thing, you know, as a person of color who actually um, many times have been passed over because I felt like, you know, maybe some of my uh, Asian or Hispanic or white counterparts uh, maybe had a little bit more favoritism from a particular elected official. But this is a case where I think if you just take out Governor Kemp doing this just because he is trying to make an effort to promote more uh, minorities in the metro area, I think I think the governor deserves a little bit more credit in that. As someone who's very close to this process and know how it goes, one of the things that this administration has done is that they really level it down to people who are qualified. Now, let's bring back into politics, to your point, Dennis. To do this in Cobb County, which is now a blue county, which was a re- uh, Republican Republicans county lost it for recently. a long time, and to put a qualified, and I stress qualified, woman who happens to be an African-American woman, let's start there, go in that order, is a signal to the constituents in that county that not only is this judge qualified to be in this position, but more importantly, you know, there's there gives this feeling with Judge Holmes being there and being this new DA that it's going to be a fair and proper process at a time when we know that not just in Cobb County, other areas of our region where there's been some misconduct alleged by officers and racial profiling. You then go to Doraville. And now with this new appointment, these are all metro areas where we know that the Republicans historically has not done as well as they should be doing. And both and, of these folks will be running on the ticket and, next and time. And so there, I swear sometimes, Dennis, you can, you can read my <laughs> mind. The one thing if you look at with these appointments from the governor, and I know that Governor Deal um, really asked these questions too when they were appointing judges, is can you get elected or reelected in your district? Because the worst thing that a governor or anyone needs is to appoint someone and then turn around a year later or two years later and they get defeated. You want someone who's going to be there and can show continuity. So, you know, beyond the qualifications, beyond the color of their skin, beyond the demographics of the county, I do think electability uh, and being one of the community and being able to get the vote that's needed is very important in these decisions as well. Quick point on that. John King, the new insurance commissioner, 
the Kemp office wanted him to run for re-election. So part of the deal is he's going to run for re-election. Mm-hmm. And so he'll he'll run as a Republican. This is assuming, though, that Jim Beck is convicted of the charges, the fraud charges that he's facing. Should his case either be tossed or he's acquitted, then that That's complicates possible. things. It's possible. But what Kemp is doing is planning for the eventuality that Beck has removed. They are they are planning for that. If he comes back, fine. You know, uh, Mr. King can go back to being a police officer. But they're planning for on him running for re-election as a Republican. You get to the Cobb DA, here's where it gets tricky. So you're not going to find many African-American women anywhere in the country that are card-carrying Republicans. So what is the new Cobb DA? Did the governor appoint somebody who's going to run as a Democrat next time in, in a county where a Democrat now has an advantage in a countywide election uh, numerically? Hillary won that county. So is there a commitment there is what you're asking? Yeah, I don't know. The story, I thought but, the AJC story did not go into see, the partisan uh, r- relationship of the new DA. Now, I, it's an interesting question. But see, this is what's different. Because, look, if if you had a Democratic governor right now in the state of Georgia, and that person was Stacey Abrams, I'm sure that her political advisors will calculate the significance of appointing someone who's going to run as a Democrat. But what's so unique about what this governor is doing, Dennis, and, and, and Brian just hit the nail on the head— I think I go back to the electability. He is going to probably soon enough for some of the radical conservatives in the Georgia party, not Brian, others are going to say, oh, my God, you're, you're appointing too many Democrats. You're, you're appointing too many people of color. Now, now, they're not going to be foolish enough and probably say this publicly, but I'm sure some of these Republican back rooms, they're looking at these appointments and say, oh, my God, why are you not appointing Republicans in this position? I think what the governor knows is don't fight that fight. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's actually probably listening to what Brian has been saying is like, hey, just be cool. Um, <laughs> and, and, and now now where I would like to see is when we start getting to some of these conservative counties in outside rural Georgia, if he appoints African-American men or women, Hispanic or Asian who are qualified in Republican areas, then that's when you would see sort of this revelation and sort of groundbreaking transition that is happening in Georgia. Quickly. I want these people of color <laughs> appointed to be Republicans. I mean, they don't have to be. That's not going to happen, Brian. Let me tell you this. It, 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 but, and, they and, don't and, have let, to let be Let me put my partner hat back on. The problem with the Republican Party in Georgia, I've said this for the last few years, your policy does not match your rhetoric. You are the only one out here in Georgia, and I want to commend you, is saying we need more minorities in the party. Now, there's other folks at the Georgia Chamber, Metro Chamber, that does a symbolic job of trying to get more minorities and other people. But until the policies, the policies match the rhetoric, African-Americans in Georgia are not going to continue to support the Republican Party. And now there are some African-American Republicans out there. I debate them every day. And many day. pro-life they, and, uh, they are. And they And they troll me, and I troll them back. <laughs> All right? But yeah. this is a small percentage, less yeah. than 10%, and you're never going to get into that 90% until you start matching the policy with the uh, that is overwhelmed, the, the rhetoric. And kudos to Kemp for the appointments. We've mentioned Stacey Abrams a couple of times. We want to quickly get to her trip to Hollywood. Stacey goes to Hollywood, you might say. <laughs> Governor Kemp... I would think, Brian, although he certainly is no fan of Stacey Abrams and vice versa, <laughs> might actually be thrilled that she was out in Hollywood saying, stay and fight rather than pull your business out of the state. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to sound like Brian when I say this. Let me tell you something. Kudos to Stacey Abrams. I mean, she, there's not a talk show. That doesn't sound like me at all. <laughs> no, 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 no. No. Kudos to her for staying relevant. 
and basically dominating oh, every she, show she that we talk about. So, so I'm saying, I think you all would these say, months later, yeah, yeah. I mean, her her PR, and I'm not, and I'm not. Let me say this because I know she has a lot of supporters who listen to our podcast. I'm not saying what she's doing is to continue to get PR and and uh, and media, right? I think she genuinely wants the movie industry to stay here in Georgia. I think so too. But she has just consistently been able to interject herself. So, boom, to your point, if I'm Governor Kemp, I'm like, yes, go out there, Stacey. Like, because it, he canceled his trip. Yeah, and, and encouraged him to stay in the state because I, I kind of want them to stay here, but I had to pass a bill, support a bill to my constituents, primarily Republicans, some some Democrats who are pro-life, some, very, very, <laughs> some, that, that agree with the heartbeat bill. Pro-life, but don't think we need a heartbeat bill. So this is very beneficial to him. But, you know, I think that at the end of the day, this is where Georgia is in a unique place because you have the opponent who lost to the sitting governor, who the sitting governor canceled a trip, but she's now going out there and had a conversation because at the end of the day, if these movie industry people decide to stay in Georgia, it's going to be the governor who continues to foster that relationship and provide those incentives and stuff like that. So it's, it's a big win, I think, for both of them. What better place for a brilliant actor to play the role of governor than Hollywood? <laughs> and that's what she's doing out there. But it's and, not just governors that brought the film industry here, although they had a lot to do with it. And Governor Deal, she your old boss, out was there, part of it. out there speaking as if she is the titular head of this government. That's what she sounds like out there. Like she's speaking for the state like the like she's the queen. Or I don't mean that as monarchy. I mean like as head of state is what I'm trying to say. And look, I, I think we all share the same goal on the business end that we keep our investments here. We all want that. You don't see Brian Kemp out there continuing to beat the drum with divisive rhetoric on that. We discussed two weeks ago the C-list celebrity stuff. You don't see him saying those things right now. There's been a change of tone and a, a change of direction there. He's not backing down from his stand on the heartbeat bill by any means. What he is saying, and they are beginning to repeat this message effectively, the film industry and respect for life can coexist. And that is a strong message and he needs to keep repeating it. It is the right tone. Uh, it's not inflammatory. And I, I do hope that we're able to kind of get past this on, on the on the movie stuff. But one thing that Stacey is doing on the second track, the non-business track, it was all political. I mean, she was brilliantly pushing a political message the entire time. She's talking about the film industry, but she's really talking about Stacey Abrams, isn't she? Y'all well, stay and fight because I'm going to be back and we're going to win next time and we're not going to let them do this anymore. We're going to reverse this. This was a political message. It was a political platform for her. It's not just about business. But And Brian just actually took the words out of my mouth. That was a great transition. Governor Kemp never said, I want the, the, mus uh, the, the movie industry to leave Georgia. He never said no. that, right? But to have her go out there now and say, hey, the worst thing you can do is pull out and lose these jobs is just to stay here. So them staying here helps the governor, right? But it also, to Brian's point, it helps Stacey Abrams because she's also saying, stay here and contribute to my organization. She even <laughs> yes. said on Morning Edition, we need to change the people making the decisions. And I'm assuming that maybe she's tipping her hand a little bit in saying, okay, the race that I'm really going to enter 
is the governor's race again. And and, and the thing that now, really, I don't know that I'm just and, I'm and, just reading and, tea and, leaves and here. Dennis, yeah. Dennis, you've covered Georgia politics longer than Brian and I, but I've never seen an opponent this far out, like saying and making every inference possible that I'm gearing up to run against you next time and, and, and been able to stay in the public spotlight this long and this early. And so I think we're already talking about a possible rematch. And I think that she has utilized this moment in time to, again, you know, stay out there and stay in the mix when we come to talking about issues that face everyday Georgians. And look what she's a- able to, to pull off. Even in this era of media's resources dwindling, the Cox Enterprises platforms in this market, which are the biggest platforms in this market, both sent reporters out there reporters. to follow her around Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, my and, my old mean, shop, Channel 11, sent, sent some folks out, too. Oh, did they? Yes, okay. they did. Even stronger case for me there, that the Atlanta media is following her every word, just like they would if she was the governor of the state. And look, I, I know a little bit about hurting media in, in a governor's office. I did it. I probably, I must say. Well, thank you, and I did it, and I did it for as long. I probably with a little bit of controversy, a little little strikes there on Twitter. You know, I mean, it was it was it was a little little back and forth. It was one of the most fun eras of governor's office communications of all time. It was comical, (laughs) and I served in that job probably as long as anybody ever did. But it's hard to get them to spend money to go with a governor somewhere, much less for somebody who lost the race for governor. And she, people talk about how brilliant Trump is at manipulating the media. Oh, my God. Stacey could teach the Trump University class on it. But yeah. I, w- I would say this as we close. This, I think, though, puts so much attention on next year's trip. At a time, hopefully, and this is my plea to, you know, to hope that Georgia, you know, will figure out a way to work together to not uh, have this you know, heartbeat bill law go into effect. And so if it doesn't and the federal government, you know, overrules and this this particular law doesn't go into effect in Georgia. Now, when the governor goes back next year, I mean, you're going to see a tremendous amount of coverage and he is going to be able to really do something big. So while he didn't go this year, I do think it sets it up for every media outlet to not only cover him, but to give him some some really good payback in a good way to make sure that Georgia and this trip by the governor is really front and center and uh, and that people know about it. And that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Theron Johnson is a Democratic strategist, public affairs and government consultant, and former National Southern Regional Director for the Obama 2012 campaign. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff for former Governor Nathan Deal. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you, Dennis. Have a great weekend. And if you like this show, subscribe, please. And you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate us. That's a great way to make sure that other people can find us. We will be back in your feed and in your head real soon with more nourishing political conversation. Be sure to join us. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. 
The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 